Hey, toy family. Welcome to another edition of the Marsham Toy Hour. I'm Teresa Hawkins. Where we discuss anything and everything designer toys. I'm Gary Ham. Oh, good God. <laughs> and I don't care if you forget a line. I'm George. <laughs> she forgot it last time, so I figured on her second time of hosting she would get it right. But I'm going to f- go back into the background now. It's fluid. Whatever. It's a fluid you know podcast. What? Hey, look, I'm trying. I'm hosted again. I'm doing what I can. At least I didn't call everyone the ham bones like George. That's true. <laughs> I like ham bones. Marshamites. I don't Marsh- like that. <laughs> I don't either. I don't like either one of those. There's Surely there's something better out there. The hamsters? No, that's terrible too. How about listeners? Yeah, the listeners, the toy fam. But anyway, so yeah, I'm trying to drive the ship a little bit. I may crash, but that's okay. Let's jump in. So, we got another guest this week. This is actually someone who has been in the toy scene for over 10 years. So, uh, our guest is a toy producer based out of Chicago. He's been helping bring toys to life in the scene since 2007. Um, And over the years, he's worked with a bunch of different artists. Sean 64 Colors, Chris Reiniak, uh, Travis Lamp. It's Lamp, right? Not Lampy. I pray I got that right. More recently, Horrible Dorables, to name a few. Our guest today is Joe Summers of Squivels Inc. Welcome, Joe. Hey, great to be here. Thank you for having me. Teresa, that was way better than a guy who's been in the scene for a long time doing things. Hey, was that not accurate? Yeah, I've been would've, doing would've stuff. Been for today, too. <laughs> I know. Your, your intro in for Ben, I could have just repeated that. We could have just pressed play and replayed that for a million of our episodes over and over. <laughs> Thanks for joining, Joe. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I got to ask to start. Squibbles Inc., what's the story there? <laughs> Made up- Good question. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, when, when I came up with that name squibbles, it was in the, it was around 2000 and I was doing a bunch of licensed stuff at the time. And this was sort of my, a design brand name that I'd come up with. And it was something I just made up. It's just a silly sounding word or whatever. And I added the I N K at the end because so much of my stuff was sort of pen and ink designing, developing. So that's the name. I like it. No super deep. (laughs) Hey, some of the best names are just made up goofy things. I like it. Squibbles. It's cute. Squibbles. So you mentioned licensing work. So one of the things I, I actually don't know what your history is or what your day job is or any of that or what even brought you into the scene. Do you do work with toys on the daily? Is Squibbles like a side business and your day job is still toys? Um, well, so back back then, back in the, the mid-late 90s, I was uh, an avid Pez collector and also vintage toy stuff. You know, I was a pretty avid flea market goer. And, and um, yeah, after I finished graduate school... Uh, I went. I I moved from the Detroit suburbs where where I went to graduate school, and I moved to Chicago. And um, I was working in the the type, the font industry. And I kind of, after a couple of years, I I realized that I wasn't really cut out for nine to five work. So I wound up uh, starting a collectible toy store. That store was called Summer Zoo, 
and was pretty heavily doing Pez business. And I was like driving to Canada to buy gray market Pez dispensers because at the time the Canadian market still got their product from Europe. And so they had characters like Asterix and Obelix or uh, Pink Panther, you know, characters that some Americans knew, but it, you know, wasn't really something that was going to sell in a Walgreens. So, so I would drive to Canada, which is about a five hour drive from here in Chicago and like load up my car with (laughs) Pez dispensers from the, the candy wholesaler there. And then, you know, drive it back and sell it in the store. And I would wholesale it then to other people around the country who either had a little mom and pop shop or they may be people who like set up on the weekend at a flea market and sort of had a little gray market Pez distribution business. And that led me to a guy in Germany who was a distributor who basically, uh, I'm not sure how up and up this deal was, but but this is how it went down. Um, and, uh, he basically contacted me and said, Hey, you know, I, I know you, you deal with these pest dispensers a lot. I have a way to do custom Pez dispensers, not custom molds, but like take existing molds and do weird colors. Huh. And, and so, um, there was another guy in Michigan who, was basically on par with what I was doing as well. And he, he had, he had just done something also. And, um, so I said, yeah, like I, you know, I would, I would love to do that. So I, with a buddy of mine who also has a collectible toy store here in, in Chicago, and he, he actually, his business is still, still going. That's called Quake Toys. Anybody who's looking for a, an old Star Wars figure. Um, we, we decided to do Pez, one of the Pez dispenser styles is a truck. Um, I don't know how, how familiar you guys are with the vast array of different Pez dispensers, but there, there's a style <laughs> that are different semi trucks. So that the, what would normally be the head is like the cab of a truck oh. and then the, the shaft is the the trailer and so so my buddy dave and i decided that was that was the way to go and nobody had ever done glow in the dark pez dispensers before so we did a a series of black and gid and gray and gid uh truck and trailer pez dispensers and if you if you get a hold of a a pez price guide uh, I think to this day, it'll still, they're listed as Joe's trucks. Whoa. And, uh, I don't know what they're worth, but it was a fun little project. And that sort of gave me a taste for making stuff like producing stuff. And so, you know, fast forward a few years and, and I do this, uh, these trucks and this other guy does some, some crazy colorway stuff. And suddenly like, Pez USA is like, you know, wait a minute. Now they're like, now they're stepping on toes 
So I never got a cease and desist or anything like that. But um, but they then that's that's really since that time. If you go back and look at the history of Pez dispensers, you'll see a, a definite uptick in the number of new designs every year from like 1998 going on. And now they now they do new new designs all the time. It, it wasn't just me. I mean, it was the Pez collecting community. Like ba- basically, people couldn't get enough, and there was a demand for it. I mean, it's classic American capitalism, really. Supply <laughs> and demand. Um, well, so to finish the story, so I do this, and that that goes goes okay, and then a couple of months later, maybe maybe six months later. This guy walks into my store and he's like, "Hey, you know, are you Joe?" And I, yeah. He's like, "Yeah, Dave. Dave sent me down to talk to you. He he said that you you know everything Pez." So it turns out this guy had was in the candy business, and again, this is late late nineties, and around that time, candy novelty items. They went from being like a Pez dispenser or maybe the occasional seasonal item to being a completely whole aisle in Target. Wow. You know, th- things like, you know, the M&M me- mechanized candy dispensers and uh, spin pops and, you know, all the kind of gadgety crap. Yeah. You, you know, you don't want to just buy your kid a, a 10 cent lollipop. You got to buy them a, a three dollar battery operated things so they can eat their their sucker and it i don't remember what the numbers were but like you know this that whole like type of business in the candy industry became like its own huge thing and so this guy that that walked into my shop he had sort of inherited meaning some other guys started this company and then bailed on it and he was left with it he was a sales guy and so one of the licenses he had was for Pez. He's like, well, you know, he tells me, like, I got to come up with some stuff to sell in the candy aisle. And then it, then it came up that I had a design background. So I started helping him to design. His main thing uh, was 10 boxes, 10, 10 containers. You know, to older people, that was, you didn't want just like a paper package of candy like you put it in a 10 and suddenly it like had more value. It's value added is the, <laughs> is the term they use. Yeah. So I'm designing like Beverly Hillbillies tins that would have whatever like cheap crappy candy in so that they could, you know, stick it in the Christmas aisle at Target or wherever. Uh, and so I'm, I'm designing all these like different properties to do these things. And and like I said, one of the things that he had a license for was Pez. And originally um, they were going to do a Pez tin. So there had been historically in the past, there had been actually, in fact, Pez, when it was first, I'm totally talking about stuff that you guys don't have anything to do with toys. I'm sorry. Um, Pez is is definitely related to toys. Well, Pez originally wasn't, wasn't a plastic dispenser. Originally in the 20s, when Pez was invented or be, you know came to be, in fact, Pez, P-E-Z, is short for Pfefferminz, which is Austrian for peppermint. Oh, really? Yeah. 
And and so they were sold in a metal tin, like an Altoid. Whoa. Originally. And then wait, so they used to not even have the little heads and the little No. No, no. The the first dispensers basically looked like a lighter. Like they just had a little sort of thumb tab. I think I've seen that before. Where I've seen like recreations of the original dispenser. Yeah. Well, there there's a modern version of it that's slightly different. Like the first ones are very this very cool kind of art deco styled top and the shaft's been the same pretty much the whole time except like at one point in the 80s they added the feet but yeah so originally they were sold in tins so there was all this old artwork and i had a bunch of this stuff because i collected old like packaging and advertising stuff and all that stuff so so i was able to put this stuff together for him but one of the tins that they wanted to do was in the shape of like a big pez dispenser and it would be like if you laid a, a Pez dispenser flat on its back and then the lid was like the top, the face, okay. you know, whatever. And so then the trading company that we were working with out of Hong Kong, this guy by the name of Howard, he says, you know, for the price you're going to pay to make this tin, I could make you an actual dispenser. And I, I told the guy that I was working with, I'm like, we have to do this. Like the collector community would go crazy for these things. And so uh, I set about developing what's called a giant Pez dispenser. And so it's about a foot tall Pez dispenser that actually dispenses a full pack of Pez at a time. And this was something that you designed and it actually came out and everything? Yeah, I, I developed it and... Um, and so the first one that I did was uh, Peter Pez, which is the, the mascot clown. And then after that, we just we just started like going through the licenses. This so, is nuts. So we did, you know, Peanuts, Muppets, uh, Star Wars. Uh, at one point in time, we took the Peanuts license. Um, and these are all like, it's not like I created brand new head designs. I'm basically adapting classic, you know, Pez, little Pez dispensers and, and, and adapting them to these larger. Into the big ones. Yeah. How are, how are you allowed to do this? Did Pez give you permission? Yeah, we had, we had a license. We had a license, and so I would... Through your friend, through your friend's candy company, they had the Pez license, which in turn gave you the ability to do all this stuff. The the company was called uh, Brand New Products, is is what the name of the company was. This uh, this guy, Steve, who walked into my store, like I said, he, he had been a sales guy for this company. I was living the life I dreamed of. I was basically buying and selling and living toys and advertising collectibles. And, uh, and I just didn't want to, didn't want to give that up unless the offer was good. So this guy basically promised to make me a partner and, and eventually I, I shut down the store, put it in storage. And, uh, most of it is still in storage. Um, (laughs) 
and basically, yeah, I just basically walked away from that business and started doing product development. And that, that meant, you know, working with, like I said, all these licensing people, peanuts, 20th century Fox doing Simpson stuff, you know, Muppets, all the, all those things. And through work doing that, that Pez dispenser, uh, giant Pez development, I was going to China regularly and I was learning hands-on injection molding and you oh, know, nice. mold design. And whenever we would go, you know, I'm just, you know, we're there looking and proofing our stuff, but then somebody else is doing something different over here. I'm like, what's that? How do you do that? And basically learning other processes and then taking things like old vintage candy containers that were maybe blow molded and, and saying, hey, we should develop a product based on this so that, you know, I had an excuse to do a blow molded project <laughs> and basically just collecting processes like my bag of tricks. Like I, I just I want to learn a new bag, a new trick for my bag. Uh, and that's what really got me into understanding and loving the process. That's, I really uh, want to know what a blow mold is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Do you blow into it? Uh, the machine does. So okay. it's, it's basically imagine a block that's cut in half and two, the two halves have um, the, the image. It's, it's a mold. So okay. the two halves get pushed together and there's a hole in the top and a hole in the bottom. And there's this, this ooze, this tube of material that's like dripping out of a machine, like a, like a snotty nose. And, okay. and so the, the two molds clamp over top of that ooze and then the machine blows air into it. And that basically inflates that tube of ooze to whatever shape the mold is. And then it gets cut off and you've got a piece. Cool. Because it's, because it's Halloween. Think of like the classic pumpkin trick-or-treat sort of bucket. That's a blow mold? That's blow molded. Oh. Cool. Think of the, have- like, uh, isn't Shogun Warrior, those those things? Those are kind of blow yes. molded, right? Yep, the, the, those pieces, most of those parts are blow molded. So we don't we don't really use that for our scene. It's more no. mass market. That's cool though. Someone needs to start making blow mold toys. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Okay. Well, that makes. I mean, that makes total sense. I mean, you uh, you kind of had this sort of crazy history, a love for Pez. It sort of led you into. That was kind of happenstance. This guy walked in, and then you started to do stuff with him, and then lo and behold, you're in factories and. It led you to today where you're producing toys in our yeah, scene. Yeah. So one, one of the things when I would go in the early days, this is late 90s, uh, early 2000, we would fly into Hong Kong and then we would like do day trips into China because at the time it was like the idea of like spending any time in China seemed crazy. And so so all of our trips to factories were like, just over the border basically and so we would go and then we would come back to hong kong that night and walk around hang out in in the city 
And one of the one of the cool things in uh, in Hong Kong, especially back then, was Temple Street Market, which is basically again going back to flea markets. Uh, basically, this big giant street market that that happens there in Hong Kong. And so I'm walking around there, and it's probably I'm going to guess this was 2001, maybe. And I see these crazy, like really hard sort of edge, very stylized figures that were very urban. And I was like, whoa, like these these pieces are cool. And of course, because they're here in the flea market, they're they're probably bootlegs. But like that, I came back and I was talking to a buddy of mine. I was like, oh, man, on this last trip, I saw these figures and um, they're, you know, they're rotocast. They're they're super cool. They're they're very designed. They're they're not of any character that I that I was aware of at the time. And it just like really stuck with me. And meanwhile, I'm like, you know, up to my nose in licensing stuff. And all, my day consists of, you know, corresponding with some licensing agent someplace or send sending people specs or sending people pictures of sculpts to make sure that everything's cool and then doing package design following the scripted design that I've got to follow and basically adapt their style to our packaging and I'm doing all this stuff and all the time I'm th- I, I'm thinking about these figures and then at some point I I had picked up a juxtapose magazine and I see these fi- okay. these kind of figures in juxtapose and I think they called them designer toys and I was like this is it like this 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 is what I saw in Hong Kong and so that that sat with me for a while and and uh eventually like in 2003 uh I left the brand new partnership and basically made Squibbles Inc my own thing and at that time I was I was still doing licensed stuff in fact mostly I was doing Pez stuff still floaty pens, was making puzzles uh, and some stationary stuff. But all, all the while, I kept thinking about these toys, and I was talking to this buddy of mine about it. And eventually, he said, oh, you got to go check out this place called Rotofuji. Like, they've got that kind of stuff there. And so this was like probably 2006. That summer, I walked into Rotofuji, and your life changed. <laughs> and, and it really did. Um, I struck up a conversation with Kirby. I was, I don't know, I, was, I had said something that was based about the process, talking something about the process of, of something that had been made. And he's like, oh, well, what do you do? And I'm like, well, I, I'm basically, I'm a product developer, but, uh, you know, I, I do a few different things. Um and one of the things that I was working on at the time was a mold for the Moldorama company here in Chicago. Oh, cool. Because I, I had contacted those guys trying to buy a machine. For kicks to like have in your home? Basically as like an art project. Okay. Uh, again, like you're, you know, at this point, I'm just like a complete nerd for process, <laughs> right? And, uh, and this idea that like, I could have one of these things and make like small edition figures out of a vintage piece of equipment. I couldn't think of anything that would be better than that. But at the time I was working on the mold and it came up with Kirby 
And Kirby was also a huge Moldorama fan. And he and he confessed at the time. He's like, yeah, I've always dreamed like to have one of those machines here in the store. And at the time, I still thought maybe I was going to be able to get one. And I thought, OK, great. Like now I got a place to put it even. So anyway, that that led me to thinking, hey, why am I still like chasing this license stuff? I want to make the stuff that's in this store. This is the kind of stuff I want to be spending my time and energy on. And, you know, a couple of conversations later with with Kirby and Whitney, a relationship was built and uh, the rest is history. Wow. That was only our first question. So (laughs) what so did you did you are you the one that made the mold for the Tim Biscuit? Yes. For that Moldorama? Yes. The helper dragon. And did you do, was that mold made in the States or was that made in China and brought over? Tim sculpted that piece, basically sent me, I think it was a resin cast that he sent me. I took that piece and took care of all the undercuts and everything because it has to be a two-part mold, so it can't it can't have undercuts. Right. And it got sized down a little bit. And then, you know, I made the pattern for the two mold halves and took it over to a local foundry here in Chicago and had it a lost wax aluminum casting made, cleaned it up and put it on the machine. Oh, that's amazing. So what? Okay. So you established this relationship with Rota Fuji. So um, has the majority of stuff you've done in the scene been in collaboration with them? At least in the beginning it was, right? So was It was completely. Very... In the beginning it was completely. Okay. And so what was your very first toy production? Finished. Finished? The, the, the first designer what would fall into the designer toy category would be the Seanimals Micro Plush, which aren't aren't vinyl, obviously. They're they're the ugly stepsister of designer toys. They're plush. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but that that was the first series that was produced and released. So what was your first beret uh, into vinyl? First vinyls were Travis Lampy Teardrips and 64 Colors Marshalls. A couple favorites. Designer toy classics, actually. Man, okay. Those two blind boxes. And that would have been 2009 or 2010. Oh, was yeah. it that late? I feel like it was so much earlier than that. It feel, Yeah, I know. But I, I think technically it's, it was probably 09 then. We, now that we're kind of getting into the toy thing, so I know we haven't really even mentioned yet all the different things you're connected with. I know I did a quick rundown of some artists in the beginning, but when I think of Squibbles, Inc., I think of, like you mentioned, the Travis Lamp teardrops and then 64 Colors. I think about all the Marshalls and the little gumdrop dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also think a lot, everyone knows that I really love um, Chris Raniak's work, but I think about all the stuff you've done with him as well. I know you've done the Sonoboras and the Muscamoots back in the day. Mm-hmm. And then more recently, you've done Algonac. So there's a, I don't know, I feel like you've kind of, been around and doing stuff for a while with a variety of different artists. So one of the key things when Kirby and Whitney and I first met up was, you know, we talked a lot about being in Chicago and being in the Midwest. And at the time, there really, I mean, there were us, uh, you know, there were people making work, 
in the scene as far as like customs and things, but there weren't really any vinyl actual figures or pieces being produced by Midwest designers or artists. And although it was like never like a hard mission statement, we were definitely dedicated to focusing on Midwest artists and designers. And that's why if you run through the roster of people that we've worked with, they're all basically Midwest people. The, o- the only exceptions are, well, the Tim Biscuit uh, Helper Dragon Moldorama piece, which uh, may- maybe we count that, maybe we don't. The shag figures we did, we did those in conjunction are those, with... Are those the shag racers? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so um, the Shriner and the Skullboy were both done separately as a part of two different shows that were were exhibits that happened at Rotofuji. So that was our our sort of loophole to to work with, you know, Shag who's, you know, Josh's West Coast artist. And then later I did the larger Jerome smoking ice creams with Frank Kozik. But that that also originally was supposed to be in conjunction with a show that was going to happen. And then through a series of truly misfortunate events, uh, that show never happened. But we produced that's, those pieces. That's cool, though, that you had to focus on sort of the Midwest side of the states and pulling in. It makes sense. All those different artists that were in the area and making their work. So even um, the Jeremy Tinder Tinder toys. Yeah. Jeremy's here in Chicago. Oh, OK. He's, he's a comic artist and uh, teaches at the Art Institute friend and family of the store and that was that was very much kirby kirby was uh he's like i think this guy's stuff is perfect and uh, you know as soon as i saw it i was like absolutely like how fast can we make them so that that was one thing i was gonna ask is how the whole relationship worked so i know um at the beginning it was a collaboration with you and and rota fuji so did kirby kind of handle the relationships of reaching out to artists or making connections with them and then just bring it to you and say, Hey, help me get this done. Or did you have involvement in establishing any of those relationships and saying, Hey, we we should really look at this person and pull them in and make stuff for them. Yeah, it, it was absolutely a collaboration. The relationship was built around the fact that I was an outsider to the scene. I didn't want to just like start making stuff and like show up and say, hey, does anybody want to buy my stuff? I saw the relationship with Rotofuji to be two different things. One, they had street cred and an amazing setup. The, you know, the gallery shows and their assortment of offerings have always been stellar. But people knew who they were and they had relationships with people. I didn't have to cold call somebody and say, hey, I, I, I think your, your drawing would make a cool toy. There's already a relationship there. For example, the Travis Lampy teardrips, those originally were part of a show that he did at Rotofuji Gallery. And originally, they were these two pieces of canvas sewn together. And then huh. those faces were painted on the canvas. And at that show... I pulled Kirby aside and I said, hey, I think these 
would make cool vinyl toys. I mean, this was at the opening of, of the show. And so he's like, all right, well, let's, let's talk to Travis. And so we pulled Travis over to the side and we're like, hey, we, we think this would be a cool vinyl toy. And Travis was like, okay, you got it. Uh, <laughs> cool. Let's do it. And so, yeah, I've, I've actually always wondered that. Like, as someone who produces, it seems like inspiration can come from anywhere. So if someone, if you wanted to help make a toy for someone or someone reached out and said, hey, help me make a toy for me. I mean, will you pretty much accept inspiration from anywhere? So whether it's a sketch on a napkin or a piece like that, like a a 2D piece or a different fine art piece is inspiration. Can you pretty much start from anywhere and start making it happen? Sure. Yeah. I, I My personal approach to, to production is that it is a collaboration. I can't stress that enough. I don't care if it's just a concept that somebody just speaks. So long as everybody who's involved is open-minded and willing to like work it out who knows what can what can happen? The Marshall figure was originally one of those letterpress prints. And Kirby said to me, he's like, hey, I think this figure has the potential to be something. And I, I looked at it and I said, absolutely. Like, that looks like classic advertising figure to me. Let's do it. And so, you know, he contacted Eric and, you know, we, we worked through the process. I, he, there was just that 2D image of that letterpress print. And, uh, and so I went home after Eric agreed that he would be on board to do something. And I sculpted a figure, sent him pictures and he said, okay, I like this, but I think it needs to be more like that. And, you know, I made revisions and we worked on it until he was happy with it. And I knew it was something I could produce. And then we go to the next step. Marshall's your longest running figure, isn't it? It's going on almost 10 years now, and you're still doing occasional colorways and iterations of it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Marshall is is sort of an evergreen figure. Like, he's just simply wonderful in the sense that, like, anybody can look at it and sort of get it, whether you're three or 90. And the, the design, the, you know, simple face of it is attractive i mean everybody everybody loves that kind of clean classic style well not everybody but um, (laughs) the smart people do joe i know i know (laughs) for those not familiar the marshall is a it's a what a two and a half inch two inch vinyl toy that joe's produced uh, along with rotofuji they worked with 64 colors eric and laura eric was the designer of marshall and it's pretty much you would describe probably bestly as just a classic marshmallow mascot character. It's a very simple design, probably yeah. very easy for paint application. I believe you do all the paint application yourself, don't you? You do the mass and the paint work and, and all, all that stuff, don't you? Well, so so for the production stuff, like Marshall series, those are pad printed. That's done overseas. Okay. I do have a pad printer at my studio here, but I've never gotten it to work very well for me. So very few pieces have, have I – like just small run edition so stuff. Why was but, I thinking that you did do some pad printing on pieces? Like maybe it was the dumplings, the pork dumplings that you do with My Plastic Heart. Or I feel like you did do some hand painting of this 
Was it the Snyboras that you're airbrushing? Yeah. So okay. so what happened was I was making the blind box stuff, which was great, but it was it was basically me doing a lot of production work, you know, sort of being the the so I sort of picture myself as like the Phil Spector of the scene, uh, as far as like the, those collaborations. You know, I'm the producer in in the other room. George Martin, if you will, that's like working with somebody like the Beatles, who are the real rock stars of these pieces. You know, like a, a Chris Reiniak figure, those figures are Chris Reiniak figures. Those are his characters that he designed. I'm really just helping to bring those to fruition. And, and that's, I, I'm happy to do that. I, lo- I love doing that work. It's, it's, it is very satisfying. But at the same time, <laughs> I'm also a creative and I, and I like to do stuff. So pretty early on, around 2008, I think it was our the first Comic-Con, San Diego Comic-Con we did, there was a, sh- a custom show. And one of the customs was this Chris Reiniak custom. And for the most part, Chris was really mostly a painter at the time. He was doing customs too. I remember like, he had these like really crazy, almost dark uh, type of, of paintings that he did that were, you know, to, to look at them, you could definitely see like that's a Chris Reiniak application. But there was there was this one particular figure and I had been talking to Kirby about wanting to do this sort of Americanized kaiju series. Quite honestly, like partly it was because I knew at some point I figured I would wind up sculpting something for it, but also because I knew that I could produce these blank vinyls and then I could do paint runs. Like I could do basically custom editions. So that that's how the Muskamoot came about, which was the, the first vinyl toy in that. It's called the Lake Monster series. My original name for it was Shikaiju. <laughs> oh, you sure? <should laughs> <that>. No, George. <laughs> but at the time, you know, there were a lot of we can do this, but we can't do that, and and a lot of that was stuff that Kirby was relaying to me because I, again, like I'm fairly new to the scene, right? And I don't know that there are taboos. The whole like Sofubi versus soft vinyl and, you know, is this kaiju or is this not kaiju? All this kind of stuff. So we we gave all that kind of stuff a wide berth because we didn't want to alienate anybody. And Dude, we just kaiju would have been so good. Like you still you should still use that. I, I had the domain name registered and everything. And, <laughs> and Kirby was just like, no way. And so the like sort of project name for it was called the Lake Monsters because of the Great Lakes and because we pretty quickly got Chris signed on to the project. And the plan was that we would make these different pieces by different Midwest artists, but that Chris or I would sculpt them so that that was how that sort of came about. But, you know, to this day, I I mean, I don't know how many different Muscamoots we ever did. And we did just as many different, probably more Sniboras. It was basically a release for every big show we did, including like some holidays or seasonal things. Did you end up sculpting those or did Chris do them? 
all of the lake monsters ever produced as lake monsters were sculpted by Chris. The only thing is the dredge that was a Brian Morris character. Chris did 90% of that sculpt. And then I sort of finished it. Interesting. So it's it seems like depending upon the project, there was different roles you played. Like some people did the sculpt and handed it to you. Some you did the sculpt on your own. Yeah. Yeah. It just depends upon the use case. Yeah. I mean, everything, everything, I think, except for the stuff that Chris was involved in, I sculpted. Uh, No, that's not true. The, The pork dumpling series through My Plastic Heart, I think Lamont did the, sculpted those. I don't know why, but I just didn't realize you did the sculpting stuff too. I don't know why. I should have known that. I guess I, I just get there's usually there's usually no sculpt credit. Well, I guess it should we whenever we have different guests on, we hear different approaches. So some people like a George will be hired to do a sculpt they get to hand it off to someone who does the mold and hand it off to someone else who does the paint and you know like it seems like sometimes you hand off to a bunch of people but you've really been running scoobles inc as sort of a you kind of can do it from start to finish essentially and step in at whatever point you're needed so if someone if someone wanted to work with you someone said i want to make a toy with you it, it could start like we said from anything from a sketch to a sculpt to a 3d print to whatever you could start at any point and help get it produced it sounds like yeah. And I, I that's not to say that I do every step. I know I don't do any wax work. The molds are obviously made by a mold maker, but I, I definitely oversee that stuff. I've done it enough to know when something um you know, like I I was listening to the interview you guys did with Corey, Science Patrol, and just like listening to that episode and like nodding my head in agreement a lot. <laughs> Because, you know, he, he I remember him talking about like, you know, people give you stuff and it's, you know, this arm's going this way and another thing's going another direction. And sometimes you got to tell people like, OK, that you'll never get that out of the mold if, <laughs> if that's the way it is. Yes. So there's also, a lot of a coaching and. I was going to ask that, too. I mean, I'm sure you know a lot about joints and size and molds and what's capable. So. I'm sure along the way you're providing a lot of design feedback and recommendations, right? Of, you know, someone says, Hey, I want to do this. You can be like, yeah, you could, but you know, you can't do it exactly like this. Cause there's no way that's going to be feasible. Yeah. Always limitations. Now, have you worked with one dedicated factory in China this whole time? Have you tried different stuff? Have you tried? I, Japanese wish. I wish I had had one reliable source. <laughs> I I have worked with so many different places. You know that that's what led me to you know basically starting my own place. Your own place here in the states, or your own place in China? My own place in China. Wow, I didn't know that. I didn't either. I was like, "What do you mean?" So you have your your factory is yours. I uh, yeah, I own two two rotocast machines and two slush cast setups. So is this like what Corey was talking about, where you sort of almost rent space out of other factories and use your machines out of that area? I don't, I'm, I'm not exactly understanding how you're running a factory when yeah. you live here in the States, but your factories are running. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's, right? 
<laughs> nowadays it, it has a lot of thanks to a buddy of mine who goes back to this is a guy I met back when I was doing giant Pez dispensers. Uh, he's, uh, he's a Hong Kong guy that lives in Shenzhen area. Now his name's Sam and he basically helps me to manage everything. And so I, I spend a good part of my evening and early morning on WeChat going over this and that and responding to samples or issues with waxes or this and that. Wow. So this is a full-time operational factory that you run or is it just no. sporadically ran depending on projects? I, I hesitate to call it a factory even. The concept had always been originally in 2008 when I first tried to start this. It all came about because there was a Brian Morris piece that was going to be the first vinyl figure we we were going to do and it was a bust of a little boy and uh, it was going to be a series it was called the family and, and the and the little boy was just the first piece of the series and i don't know if there are pictures out in the wild of this thing or not i know we we were naive enough to announce it that we were we were gonna do this and long story short like i couldn't find a factory to do it this thing was going to be pad printed all over just one color on top of another color. But at the time in 2007, I couldn't find a factory. Like every time I would say like, yeah, we, we want to do editions of like 300 pieces. Everybody would look at me cross-eyed and, and laugh. Right. And I would go, I would like go, we'd go sit down in a factory office and we'd, sh I'd show them the prototype and the vinyl piece itself is easy enough. It's just a straightforward rotocast bust. But then the decoration, the deco, as we call it, was like just overlay this sort of tattoo style overlay over the entire thing. And people would be like, oh, yeah, we could do that. Like, look at all this great stuff we do. We could do that. And we'd be like, OK, great. Like, we, we want to do 300 pieces each in you know these three different colors and then they <laughs> they would go oh okay okay let you know let us let us get you a number and like two hours later we'd be someplace else and we'd get a phone call and they'd be like we're not going to do it um it's an awesome looking piece i would still love to make that piece because i could make that piece now um yeah but but Brian's like that's nah, that's in the past. Like I don't I don't want it made. So out of respect for him, it's it'll never be made. That's too bad. It's really cool. <laughs> but but that led me like after I mean I bet I went to fifteen different factories over the course of six months, nine months, and like thinking like okay this place is going to do it. Like they can do it. They're going to do. It. And I I would tell people like the, this these are factories in two thousand and eight. They're used to making stuff for a nickel, but they want to make 20,000 of them. Then I, you know, I'm like, okay, well, I'll pay you whatever it would cost me to make 20,000 of these, but I, I only want 300. Right. Like, whatever that math is, just, and, and still, no one, no one <laughs> wanted to do it. Joe, I can totally relate. I started self-reducing around, I want to say, 2007, something like that. And yeah, back then, asking for a factory to do anything less than a 1,000 units of anything 
was unheard of. They just scoffed at it. They wanted nothing to do with it. And, you know, my first piece, I think I did, uh, it was a run of 600. And even getting that done was, it was not an easy task. Yeah. It it just went to, to eventually, I like, I, I finally got it through my thick head. It's like, they don't want the hassle of stopping everything they're doing and doing this thing that's going to take them, you know, a couple of days maybe only and disrupt all this other workflow. And it's like, well, but I will, I'll pay you for that two days work. I'll pay you for a half month's worth of wages. And it's like, no, no, that that's, it's a distraction to everything else. They don't, you know, they, they don't want (laughs) to do that. Does it make us idiots for wanting to? Yes. Yeah, I guess. It does because those companies are smart. They understand what margins are. They want 20,000 units and a nickel each, but designer toy people, or at least the smaller independent producer ones, we're willing to say, Hey, make a run of 300 of that thing. And I'll give you 20 to $40 a unit price. And that just doesn't make sense in the real world. Those are not margins that make sense. It's crazy. It it is. It is. And all I can say is uh, it's, masochistic in some way i i don't know i <laughs> you, you know you're probably uh, not wrong about that but i think what it really comes down to is most of us just love toys we love making them we want to see and and design and make toys we just the money side comes isn't really in the forefront of our minds if we make money at it great but most of us are not doing this as full-time day jobs this is what we do as a passion project we work the day jobs to have the luxury of doing this crazy thing called toys yeah, I mean, I, I actually I have a, a client here in Chicago that's in the Halloween business. I do all their product development. Well, I don't I do do all their their mass sculpting. This a friend of mine actually does most of that. But I do all their package design and 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 uh, I do all their sourcing overseas and stuff like that. And honestly, like I mean, I don't like go there every day. Like I said, they're a, they're a client, but like that's my bread and butter. That's how I. That's how I feed my kids. It's it's not through vinyl, <laughs> vinyl toys, uh, twenty five pieces at a time. Right. It's through Halloween masks. It's the Halloween industry. The the company is called uh, Zagoni Studios, and uh, and they're the real deal when it comes to Halloween masks. And they're they're the actual masks are made here in the U.S. here in the Chicago area, and. Uh, they're all, you know, hand painted. They're, you know, hand poured latex masks that are then all hand cut and hand painted and hand assembled. Wow. Interesting. Well, being the designer toys is kind of more of a, a passion project. I know as of late, it started out with a relationship with Voter Fuji, but it seems like you've branched off a bit from that and aren't necessarily working as hand in hand with them and even going into your own sort of things. Yeah. T- I mean, th- Rota Fuji is still there and uh you know we still have projects that we do and um yeah like like Algonac I know is yeah Algonac is is a joint a Squibbles Inc plus Rota Fuji which is you know the official brand of of our joint stuff uh there's you know I just recently sort of re-released some of the mini marshals and gumdrops as a blind box and and that's a Squibbles Inc plus Rota Fuji item I guess it's been a couple of years since I introduced, and I won't be surprised if nobody's heard of this, but uh, Eensy Charms, 
which are little plush zipper pull type things. Um, oh, yeah. I've seen those. Yeah, one one of those series is a Shaunamals ninja series, and then the other series is uh, a set of my characters that are called Under the Weather. And so, so some of that stuff is, uh, and the stuff that I'm doing that's basically just a Squibbles item, that's tending to be more of like my own pet projects. There are still Squibbles Inc. plus Roto Fuji things in the works and and things that are happening. But yeah, okay. I, I've got a piece. I just, well, I Go just ahead. think about like, I know you've worked with Horrible Dorables recently on their familiars. And then I think about uh-huh. um, like the Moody Bears you just released. And I know I saw at NYCC the CN Folk Tiger. So it just seemed like as of late, at least, I know there's there you have been working with Roto Fuji and doing Rotofuji and doing stuff with them, but I've been seeing a few other things as well that seemed kind of just to be branching out of it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, and I'm definitely doing like more production stuff for like basically OEM work for other people. So the the Tarbis, I know George's favorite. Ah, oh, the Doomco Tardigrade. Yeah, the Tardigrade. Uh, like that that piece, Kent basically came to me. You know, he was a a new new guy to the scene. In a lot of ways, the same way that I kind of hitched my wagon to Rotofuji, he came to me and said, hey, you're already a part of this. Can you both help me produce this and sort of educate me? He, he has like a design engineering background. You know, can you help me understand this process and learn this process? And I want to put your logo on it, too. I, I said, sure, great. You know, it's I, I think it's a, a cute little figure and so and it's it's certainly been successful by as far as like pieces produced it's we're on the second set of molds we wore out the first set of molds on that that thing that's awesome so the projects like that you know there's there are a number of projects that i've produced that i don't ever say who whose work i do um i figure it's up to those people to tell tell that but, to uh, say but if it was you or not, whether I'm doing the production on it, you know, mo- most people don't necessarily know what factory is producing what, and and even with that, there's plenty of people, you know, like you know, three three zero is a production company, but they don't have a factory per se. You know, they're still using another entity to do production work, and that's that's typically true for for most people. Do you, you know, enjoy, do you like being a silent partner in regards to that sort of stuff? Would you like people to know that you're helping to you know manufacture and produce some of these things, or do you just like being just part of the project in general? Uh, well, I don't. I don't need like I don't. I don't cry to myself to sleep at night when people don't <laughs> mention me. But I I think that a lot of people have known that I do this. Not everybody, but a number of people have known and. To be honest, there were a number. So I originally started to try and open, we'll call it a factory. It's it's really a production studio. I'm not set up like a big factory sure. with a giant production line and all that. It's very much more of a of a what I like to call a, a studio or workshop type. It's like setup. the mom and pops of factory. It's like a mom and pop factory. <laughs> it, it is. And, and in fact, literally, 
the, there's a guy, Mr. Lee, who does all the vinyl pulling, and his wife, Mrs. Shang, does all the post pull work. She does all the oh. cutting and and so th- those are the two people that you know right now if I log into the web webcam that they're there working. Um, and then uh, like I mentioned earlier, my my buddy Sam helps me sort of manage things. I like that you're kind of like big brother just watching from the webcam. <laughs> I know. No, but I mean, I think I, I, I get what you're saying about, I mean, I think it's even like with you, George, I mean, there's a million things I think you're behind that no one had any idea, but at the same time, when it's production, I would expect like your logo to be on the toy or on the packaging, but is that not always the case? Is there stuff that you've worked on that's not actually visibly on the toy or on the package? Oh Yeah. Yeah, Teresa, rarely do you ever know who the factory was that manufactured a toy. Usually that's a, an unknown entity. People don't usually share that information unless that factory or that sculptor is actually giving you a deal on something. Yeah, then you'll give them some recognition. But otherwise, they're mainly just a work for hire. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think I'm confusing it more with when you collaborate, I guess, on a different level. Like not just truly provide the factory connection, but actually assist with like the sculpt or something. I don't know. I just know that there's stuff that will specifically say like squibbles Inc. slash whatever. Right. So what is the difference there? What's the difference between I was just a factor behind the scenes versus someone who's calling it a Runyak slash squibbles Inc. production or horrible, adorable. You know what I mean? Like what is, where's that line drawn? What makes it something that your name is tied to versus isn't? Well, more often than not, if, if my name is on it front and center, I probably have skin in the game. Okay. Meaning, meaning I, you know, I, I partially financed it maybe or, or something to that effect, but, but other, not always. Um, sometimes, you know, it just, just depends on the circumstance and it, and it depends mm-hmm. on, on the relationship of, you know, the people I'm working with. Uh, but I, I don't, I never ask if somebody, were to contact me and say, hey, I've got this figure. I, I need to get it produced. Can you make it for me? I make up, you know, I'd write up a quote and send it to them. And they either say, okay, great. Or or they say, well, gee, you know, really? It's that much? It's usually the latter. <laughs> it's, it's usually the latter. I mean, honestly, like, I don't know what people think. It's not cheap. But it's also... You know, you don't necessarily have to mortgage your house to make a toy. It just depends on what you want to make. Do you want to make like a, a figure as simple as like a, a Marshall, which is two pieces and five pad prints? Or do you want to make this like crazy eight inch as 200 pad prints on it? You know, because depending on what you want to do and how many pieces you're willing to invest into it, it may be pretty spendy or, or it may be, you know, 5,000 bucks. You can make a toy for 5,000 bucks. And so, okay. So one, one question I feel like I hear a lot is people who are coming into the scene or trying to create toys. They're trying to ask themselves, should I try to self-produce or work with someone to produce it? Like partnering with someone like you. And do you feel like a lot of times part of that decision 
is around cost. Is there other things that would go into it? So, like if someone said to you, hey, should I self-produce or get it produced with someone with a factory? What would you feel like are the decisions that would go into making that choice aside from money, aside from cost? Well, I mean, for me, it has to do with, you know, who has what responsibility. If I've got a project that somebody comes to me and says, hey, I want to make this figure, will you produce it and sell it and, you know, market it, you know, all all the things that go into making a toy and selling that toy, then, you know, that's, that's a big ask. And I'm put, you know, if I'm putting money on the line and all that stuff, of course, my name's going to be in bold print on the very top. But if somebody's just asking me like, hey, I want to make this toy. I'm only going to make this many. It's it's my little pet project. I'm going to sell them at shows or on Instagram releases or whatever. Then then I, I don't need to have any sort of name in that game. You know, that's that's their business. They're paying me for a service. And it's, it's pretty straightforward. You know, I get, I get paid when, when the stuff gets delivered, you know, I get paid a deposit and then, you know, balance when stuff is delivered. So I don't have any risk. I'm just providing a service. So when it, when it comes down to someone doing that sort of side hobby sort of thing where you're, you don't have as much skin in the game is really the ultimate choice between whether or not, so let's say I, I had this toy idea I want to make it, I don't want to make that many. It's a side thing I want to do. And I'm trying to decide, do I go to Joe and have Joe go make this in his factory? Or do I somehow figure out to do resin casting on my own or what have you? And I do it from home. What is the, is the ultimate choice there really just around cost and material? Like, is there a pro or con to either of those choices? Is it really just ultimately down to what you can afford. Well, of course, uh, a lot of it has to do with what you can afford. But, you know, if we go back to my initial relationship with Rotofuji, that wasn't just like me, you know, hitching my wagon to their, their name. It was a huge, huge part of that was me also saying, Hey, I'm, I have this skill set. I can get things made. You guys can sell it. And so the, the relationship was always balanced in a 50-50 sort of, I was, I was production, they were sales and marketing. I, I, I shouldn't say past tense, they are sales and marketing. They're, they we're 50-50 in things as far as me doing production and, and them, then handing it off to them and then s- them selling it. So if you're an artist, and you're going to have, you know, you're going to go to Five Points or Decon or wherever and set up and put your stuff out, then you just need somebody to make the stuff for you and enable you to to put the best quality product that you can out. Yeah. Um, that's what I've tried to to build as from from the production side. I've, I've, it's originally started for myself, but, you know, to be quite frank, it costs a lot of money to have, you know, rent a space and own these machines and pay the light bill and and all that stuff. So 
I have to have, I have to rely on other people's orders to fill my day. Yeah. Well, and I think you even, you even also commented on the fact that, you know, you, with it comes knowledge of what is feasible and what's doable and, and just what can be done. So you bring that to the table as well. Uh, oh, abs- absolutely. Um, I've also, while back, you guys had that little discussion about Sofubi and, um, you know, if if it's not made in in Japan, is it Sofubi and and that whole discussion? And you know, I I made sort of a little quip in the postings about you know, well, I I've basically taken that technology and learned that process and in turn taught it to Mr. Lee and buy Cobasol materials and exclusively produce my stuff in that fashion with those materials in hopes that collectors and people in the scene will recognize that this is quality product. And and in turn, then offer that to customers who want to make things and don't want to either get in line to have it made in Japan or, you know, can't afford to make it in Japan. Yep. And, and so. So speaking of, of quality product, do you feel like there's sort of a competition in the scene between different producers? I mean, do you feel like, like you're having to compete with other producers out there, especially if let's say there are producers making pieces by the same artist around the same time frame. Do you feel like you're having to sort of compete with those companies as far as when you get stuff out and the quality of the way you make your products, you can kind of shine above, or is it sort of a, Hey, it's okay. You're doing your thing. I'm doing my thing. And I don't care if a bunch of people are doing Ronnie except for the same time. I'll just keep doing my thing. Um, well, as far as like outshining anybody, I, that's not my goal per se i mean my goal is to make you know the best quality stuff i can make whether a series of figgle bits are quote-unquote better than a a humble stump hollow they're they're two different things and i'm not preoccupied with what's a thimble stump hollow figure look like chris does amazing work and he has high standards and you know he wants the pieces that have his name on it to reflect those standards and they should and and i feel obliged to meet those standards Teresa, as as a collector i would you know i don't want you to walk up to my table and pick up a rhiniac figure and go eh, I, I, i'm gonna pass on this one i i want you to pick it up and say ah this has got to go in my collection yeah which makes sense I mean, and I think the other thing, too, is, I don't know, I just there are certain companies out there, like the Unboxes and the Pop Marts of the World, where they're just pumping out stuff left and right. I mean, it's just like product after product after product. And I just wonder, like, as a smaller producer, do you feel like it's hard to keep up and keep your prices in line with others in the industry and with the amount of product they're coming out with? Or are you just doing your own thing, kind of running on your own and... You do what you can do, and they'll do their thing, and you do your thing. Well, we, Rotofuji and I, had a a little bit of, bit of an issue in that 
the original Marshall series and the original Teardrip series came out, whatever year it was that, that they came out. And, you know, back then, blind boxes were still fairly cheap. And they were, you know, it was a three inch dunny. And these figures, I think the Marshall was pretty close to four inches, and the teardrips are five, something like that. And those pieces, you know, back then, a Dunny series was probably a quarter of a million units. You know, their production size was gigantic. And we, those, those two, the Marshall and the teardrip series... I want to say were they were they were less than fifteen thousand units each, so really really a fairly small run size in comparison, but also fairly simpler pieces. I think the teardrips have between seven and nine pad prints um, on the face of each each one, but still you know in comparison, just one rotocast piece, but bigger. They were larger, and and we originally retailed those for I think it was eleven ninety nine. It was it was over ten bucks, and we really we were like, wow, like this is a, a couple of bucks more than most people are going to pay for a blind box. And we sort of justified that by saying, well, but these are bigger pieces, also. These aren't little blind box figures. These are these are slightly larger. So we we figured it was justified. And I don't know if it was the economy, because it was right about the same time as some of the collapse of the economy, or whether we we just misguessed what collectors were willing to pay for things. But both those series were very sales resistant. <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, they did okay, but you know, we we thought, you know, how are these not flying off the shelves? And we got a lot of people who said like, oh, these are great or whatever, but it just didn't translate in, into big sales. And after a couple of years, maybe it was even only a year, you know, I, I said, I, I think we need to ease back the price on these. And, and we did. And, and we, we did a bit more because we had a little bit more margin on the teardrop. And the teardrips like suddenly like got a second wind. And those have just been a had been a steady seller until they finally sold out uh, two years ago, three years ago. So, but but I mean that was a blind box series again, less than fifteen thousand units. I mean there are still series one Marshalls available. Anybody who wants a wholesale email. <laughs> uh, maybe maybe one of our sponsors would like some of those. So our sponsors actually are the three great stores: 3D Retro, Strange Cat Toys. And My Plastic Heart. You can visit MyPlasticHeart.com on the web. If you happen to live in the States and spend $75 or more, use our promo code TOYFAM at checkout and you'll receive free shipping on that order. If you go to StrangeCatToys.com and want to save 10% off on your tire order, be sure to use our promo code MARSHAM. Or you can go to 3DRetro.com or visit 3 Retro if you happen to be in the Southern California area. Otherwise, to stay on top of all the latest and greatest in designer toy news, be sure to like and follow SpankyStokes.com and TheToyChronicle.com. All right, Joe, we are running long here. We have a bunch of listener questions for you, so how about we deliver them to you in a lightning round format? Sure. All right, Teresa, 
Yeah, I'm at it. Okay. I hate I hate for this interview to end on me talking about, you know, mediocre success, but okay. No, no, we won't end it here. We'll 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 wrap it up good with all these remaining questions. Okay. All right. How important is sale timing? Do you find event exclusives work best? Is there um is it bad to sell right before or after bigger events? Or does it matter and it's more about the toy itself? I think each each toy stands on its own, but the events are something that the the collectors look forward to, and and it's it's it creates a good platform for offering an item. Cool. Okay. Well, one thing we we totally didn't even get to is upcoming projects. So we've talked a lot about your history and things you've been working on uh, recently. But is there any upcoming projects you want to touch on briefly? I know I've seen you sneaking something around um, a Max Toy Company project that's ongoing. Yeah, that's literally probably the biggest project that's in the works. That figure is going to be probably about 18 inches in its final size, or pretty close to 18 inches. Oh, massive in size. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So is that coming out at Decon, or is that just uh, just currently in the works? I I'm hoping, but okay. Pr- production is a a fickle mistress. If I can mix my metaphors. Any, any other deeds you can share on that, or is it all under wraps, and we'll just have to wait and see? I, you know what? I I just uh, made a post on Instagram right before we got on this call that I people who know Mark's stuff uh, I think will be able to figure out what this is, but uh, a full reveal will probably come in the next week or so. Okay. Early November. So, okay. So speaking of decon, y'all know I love my scoopy scoops, leaky leaks, sneaky peeks. So, do you got any decon deets for us? Any um, Algonac colorways? Any other goodies you're planning to bring? Yes. Uh, so there'll be an, another. There'll be a GID Chinese folk tiger. Uh, that'll be at my Plastic Hearts booth, and there will be a a very well by Algonac release sizes a, a small. Uh, Algonac colorway, and then I'm going to do a, a very small painted large Algonac release. Th- those all three will be at my Plastic Hearts booth at Decon. And then I think I'm pretty sure that we're going to have another new familiar oh. colorway at Horrible Adorables. At Horrible Adorables. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And possibly something at Max Toy Booth. Oh, uh-huh. Okay, I like it. Uh, okay, getting into some listener questions. <laughs> What's your favorite New York toy store to collaborate with, Joe? <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. No, Vin and Bick are fantastic. I, I love those guys. My plastic actually, hurts, to be clear. He actually didn't even ask me to ask that, but I'm pretending like he did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this one's a three-parter i actually like this one so uh is there a favorite piece you've produced oh you know i i saw that i think robin's nest had asked that didn't they well that's like trying to you know make me pick which of my two kids i love more i know right uh I, i'm 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 pretty proud of everything that i've ever produced and i do love it all i would i would say 
on a whole, I definitely like the Snibora Lake Monster series that I painted. Uh, in fact, most of those I actually painted in collaboration with Kirby. So I, I should definitely include him in that. Um, we, we work out all those paint schemes together. And uh, I mean, I, I mostly hold the airbrush, but any of the wipes or anything like that, he, he did. So I guess maybe those. Okay, that was a loaded question. Well, here's an easier one for you. If you had to pick a favorite, who would you choose between Chris Reiniak or Amanda Louise Spade? <laughs> um, I'm kidding. Don't answer that. <laughs> Next I, question. I, I, saw, I saw that earlier. I was I was going to try and make up something funny, but uh, but the two of those guys are 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 peaches. I, I love them both. You can't. They're a bonded pair. You can't have one without exactly. Um, okay, back to this. Okay, we talked. Is there one piece you thought would take off and didn't? I think you kind of answered that when you talked about the the tears rips and the marshals, just from a number of piece perspective that it ended up not really well, aligning those with. Are, those are both solid sellers. Is is the truth of that? The the piece that we always thought like were were had success written all over them, and really never got much traction were actually the tender toys. Um, uh-huh. Those, the Jeremy tender tender toys, which are three different pieces. It's a Clem, a Robert and a Boyger. There are actually six other heads that were sculpted as a part of that series. And I have master molds for those and two other bodies. And it, because of the sales on them, I just never put them into production. Interesting. I don't want to, you should share what the heads were, at least like show people what yeah. could have been do like a little, do like a little TBT post and just say, cause there, there's some people I see in different Facebook groups of like toys that never came to be or toys that were never made. It'd be interesting just to see for you to show the history there. Yeah. Part of my Halloween resolution this year is to post more to social media. So may, maybe I'll, I'll start putting stuff on Instagram. Yeah, no, that'd be awesome. And do that, do it in the feed and not in the stories. Okay, next one. You guys, we're going to, there's no way Gary's going to be able to edit this down. He can't edit this long a podcast. I know, but I'm not done. You can cut out all that crap I said about about my past. (laughs) All right, Gary, you got your your work cut out for you on this one, buddy. (laughs) Just so the listeners know, we're over a two-hour record right now. Let me just get through the questions. They're almost done. You can decide what to do with it then. Okay. All right. We'll do super quick. Uh, one piece you were surprised at the links it has gone. The opposite. What was the most successful, you think? Oh. Um, Snyboras. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I could still make and sell Snyboras, to be honest. I think you could, too. Uh, I'm not getting into that as a loaded question. We'll have to save that for another time. <laughs> well, there was we, we had this really big conversation around handmade versus 3D printing, and that's just that's just complex. So we'll just we're just not... gonna have to have Joe back on, and I know by then we're gonna have listener questions about everybody's gonna want to make their own toy, and they're gonna want to talk to them more. So I think we should plan for a second episode later on. When people have heard this and they now have all the questions about production, because we didn't really even get into all that. I know. And what Joe basically just said out loud, you can reach out to him. 
Oh, so. I will. Be. Don't worry. I keep saying that. I've been saying <laughs> it for years, but I keep forgetting that he's there making stuff, and I need to just get there and get him. So you're coming. I'm, there'll be an email coming from me, I'm sure. All right. Good, George. All right. Well, then let's wrap this baby up. This has been fun, Joe. That is a true pleasure. Thank you very much. And we will see you soon at DesignerCon, less than a month away. Yeah, I guess I better book my ticket. What? Yeah, book that ticket. It's going to be fun. <laughs> it's going to be a blast. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm planning on going. I just haven't bought the ticket yet. Okay. What? All right, yeah, you've got some work to do. All right, so um, let's wrap this shindig up and take a minute to let everyone know where they can find you. So, Joe, you go first. Where are you out on the interwebs? Uh, well, anybody could find me on Instagram at Squibbles Inc. That's uh, S-Q-U-I-B-B-L-E-S-I-N-K. And uh, you can email me at uh, joe at squibblesinc.com. Nice. Thanks for cool. joining, Joe. Yeah. Oh, thanks for having me. All right, Gary, you go next. Gary Ham on Instagram, superham.com. George, where can people find you? Hold on, I'm writing down that email. <laughs> okay. Gary, you're not hosting I Am, so I'm supposed to say that. My bad. Don't be passing that baton. George, you're next. <laughs> uh, Double G Toys uh, uh, on Instagram. All right, and I'm Teresa Hawkins. <laughs> what? That was smooth. <laughs> you can repeat. Gary's going to be editing anyway. Fix nope. yourself. <laughs> nope, keeping it. Making it even longer. <laughs> all right well i'm Teresa hawkins tm hawk 24 on instagram this has been the marsham toy hour we do this every week and not because we have to but because we want to. exactly exactly <laughs> thank you joe my my co-host leaving me hanging <laughs> but anyway what were you gonna say gary i was gonna say because i want to edit it so <laughs> Nobody right, well, knew he was so long-winded before you asked him on the show. <laughs> oh, man, no. We love you, Joe. All right. Well, until our next transmission, we're signing off. So uh, I don't know what we say after that. Bye. 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 Thanks, Joe. All right. Well, guys, I can hear my kids screaming. I think my wife's going to strangle them. <laughs> I, uh, I really do need to part ways and, and go get them to bed. So, Joe, thanks for joining. I will try to get this edited sure. up this weekend for a Monday release. Sorry um, for all the jibber-jabber. No problem. That's that's what editing's for. Otherwise, Joe, Teresa, I will talk to you guys later. Thanks, Gary. Yep. All right, I got a job, too. Thank bye, you, Joe. Teresa. This was fun. Yep. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye, guys.